really be old school. Yeah, old school. We be old school. Yeah, old school. Hello, welcome back. This is the Hit Factory. You're here with Aaron. And Carly. And it's been a little while. We were on a little bit of a hiatus. A cryatus? A cryatus. That's what it was. <laughs> I, you know, I'm speaking for myself only. No, I, I think you can speak for both of us when you say that. The world got a little crazy there for a minute. And then we took some time off after speed. That one took a lot out of us. It and did. Maybe. I don't know why. Maybe. And then we thought, let's give things a little bit of time to level out and cool off a little bit. And Surprise, then, they haven't. Right. We thought maybe, you know, with everyone's attention and energy focused on the Democratic convention and then the Republican convention, that maybe things would chill out a little bit elsewhere. We would just be listening to some pasty, wrinkly people talking in suits for a couple of hours. Turns out, no, the the world has only gotten weirder. The wait is over because we can't really keep waiting on things to level out, I think. We're we're in a kind of a kooky space right now. I don't think... I think it's a mischaracterization to say that we were waiting for things to level out. I think we got tired for a minute, needed to take a cryatus. We did. And then decided to come back to it because what the fuck else are we going to do right now? That's true. I, <laughs> you want situ- I guess you're right. I mean, I never thought like, let's, let's pause. Well, we never discussed it outright. I guess for me, it was more of a Now's a good time to take a break and, and focus and reflect on things outside of the show that are meaningful and important. Yeah. What I didn't realize is that actually as things get crazier, it actually leads us right back here to the microphones because like you said, what else are we going to fucking do? Like there's the, the world outside is crazy. So we just take solace in, in our 90s movies. Mm-hmm. Today we've got a really good one. It is Demolition Man. It's part of our four-episode series, Sandra Palooza. This is three of four. Mm-hmm. I know we initially said it was going to be the entire month of August, but because of our cryatus, probably going to push into September. But that's okay because we've got some fun news, which is that we are going to be extending our Patreon donation to The Conscious Kid through the month of September. So if you subscribe there at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod, or if you are already a subscriber, you are going to be getting all of August and all of September subscription fees donated directly to a COVID rent relief fund, courtesy of The Conscious Kid. They're a great organization, and we want to help them out and raise a bunch of money for them and get it to some families who are in need right now. So we're going to do that. We're doing it. Yeah. But it's Demolition Man here on the pod. Here on the pod. Of course Demolition we've got, Man. Of course, we've got Sandra. We've got Sly, Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes, Sir Nigel Hawthorne. Sir Nigel Hawthorne. Who, you kind of wonder how he how he got here. How? How did he? Uh, he got cast, I guess. But I just mean, he's he's a pretty formidable player on the stage. Yeah, he's he has a very, very prestigious stage acting career. Yes. And you wonder how he found his way to... A 1993 action film like Demolition Man. Nonetheless, he is here. You've got an uncredited Rob Schneider. <laughs> is he uncredited, really? Uncredited. Was he on SNL yet at this point? Because he was doing his, like, hey. He was for sure on Copier SNL. Copier Man with the pencil. 
That I, guy. I think he has to have been on SNL. He was kind of doing that in the. He was doing his little. He only really has the one thing that he kind of does. That and then his Waterboy character are really like the two modes of Schneider that I know. His you can do it guy. Oh yeah. That's about it. Those are the only <laughs> two versions of Rob Schneider that I have ever seen perform. Isn't he in one where he like plays a a teenage girl? Yeah. Yeah, it's the hot chick. Oh, the hot chick. Okay. But but Rachel McAdams is the hot chick. Yes. And so the movie is it's it's a it's a Freaky Friday with like a creepy guy and a hot like teenage high school girl. I totally forgot about that movie and then when you forced me to think about Rob Snyder's film career, it like creeped into my consciousness well, and I was like, I feel like I know this movie well because one of my high school friends was obsessed with this movie. Okay. And so I, I ended up watching it, I think, way more than I would have anyways. Anyways. I, I definitely have seen it more than <laughs> once. It's like, now that we're on the subject of it, <laughs> you know how like in Face Off, Nick Cage and Travolta switch faces and both of them do like an incredible job pretending to be the other one? Mm-hmm. This movie, is the, the hot chick is like the opposite of that in where neither of those performers has a palpable enough on-screen presence for either of those people to play anything other than their usual form. So it's just Rachel McAdams being Rachel McAdams and just Rob Schneider in a tube top. And that's it. They know no one would care. Knew, they knew... No. Let's stop talking about this movie. We're going to stop talking about it. It's <laughs> this whole, that whole segment is getting cut. Did I say Wesley Snipes already? Maybe. Yes. Probably. Just in case. Wesley Snipes and Bill Cobbs is in this. Who's he? He's the older black man who is uh, one of Sylvester oh, yes. Stallone's uh, par- partners in 1996 and then also still on the force in 2032. Remember when we saw him at an airport? At an airport. Were we in Missouri? We were in Kansas City. We were in Kansas yeah. City. Okay. Kansas City International wild. Airport. That was one of the best celebrity sightings of my life. It was right after we saw him on that episode of The Sopranos. Yes. As well. Totally. It was a big deal for us. It was a big deal. It was a really f- uh, formative moment in our lives that eventually brought us here. Maybe subconsciously. So, but the movie is directed by Marco Brambilla. I guess this is our by the numbers. We're going to do a number rundown Marco. for you. Marco. Marco Brambilla. It's written by Daniel Waters, working off of an original script and story from Peter Lenkov, who I guess was like brand new to the Hollywood scene. He wrote like seven scripts and just pitched everything he could around town and eventually got this one picked up by the studio. What and a guy. Then, yeah. And then Daniel Waters took it over and, and had some some things to do with it. Uh, Marco Brambilla came to the project apparently after being recommended by David Fincher. Oh. So they know one another, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Joel Silver produced this. And yes. It's, has, a silver, it's a silver production. It is. And he produces everything we know. Um, so I think that the relationship from Alien 3 eventually brought Fincher to Brambilla and the cinematographer on this film, whose name escapes me now. I'm doing a really bad job with the numbers today. Oh, it's okay. But, We're good. But the cinematographer is also the same person who lends Alien 3, which is an incredibly underrated film. It's interesting that the Alien and David Fincher references come up because there were a couple times when I was watching this movie where I felt like some of the set design felt kind of alieny mm-hmm. at certain times. Well, interesting you say that. So, again, I don't have the the person's name, but the costumer, the person who did the wardrobe on this film, came from Dune. Oh! 
from David Lynch's Dune. Oh, I could totally see that. Yeah. I could totally see that. Actually, I think how how they got the part is Marco Brambilla being really blown away by the costuming and wardrobe in that movie mm-hmm. and saying, I really want Wesley Snipes in tire armor. I really loved the costuming in this movie, actually. It's pretty incredible. Snipes specifically has like four Halloween costume worthy designs to his wardrobe that are yep. just like out of this world. His aesthetic is uh, is standout in the movie for sure, as is his character and his performance of that character. But I also really liked the police uniforms. They were, not to get into Starship Troopers territory, they were, you know, a little bit fascist. They're a little authoritarian. I thought <laughs> the same. They're a little authoritarian. But it feels more gentle, right? It does. And given the nature of the film, the relation to that authoritarian presence is kind of warranted. Like they do essentially play like like a Stasi, like a state police kind of Totally. Thing. It's totally warranted. And the uh, and I also really liked the costuming of the under people. That's not what they're called in the movie. Um, the the cave dwellers <laughs> led by the sewer dwellers led by Dennis Edgar Leary Fred, by Dennis Leary. <laughs> uh, but I also really liked I liked the aesthetic of that cohort as well. The set design and the costuming in this movie were two things that I liked about it. Well, yes, those are definitely some positives about the movie. <laughs> some positives. Yeah, we should get into a couple of things we liked about it first because there's a lot about this movie that is preposterous pretentious and just plain weird but also fascinating also fascinating yeah it's this movie is absolutely worth checking out if only because it's easily consumable and there's a lot here to pull apart and think about but before we do it we should give a synopsis for the folks at home just to make sure we're talking about the same movie yep so the film begins in 1996 los angeles only three years removed just three from the (laughs) present day and Los Angeles has become a war zone. A total hellscape. Not unlike <laughs> uh, the opening scenes of the Terminator franchise. Yep. Not unlike Escape from New York or L.A. And John Spartan, Sylvester Stallone's character, plays an ace cop who likes to bend the rules and doesn't care about property damage when it means apprehending the bad guy. He doesn't bend the rules. He blows them up. He spits in their face. And then lights him on fire with his flammable spit. John Spartan has his principal rival in Simon Phoenix. Great name. Great name. Better than John Spartan. It is a better name than John Spartan. Wesley Snipes plays this villain. Always clad in fantastic prints, bleach blonde hair, doing a bunch of cocaine and playing the role just like he is doing a bunch of cocaine. At the beginning of this film, John Spartan enters a warehouse in order to apprehend Phoenix. Because he's taken a busload of civilians hostage. 30. 30 to be exact. John Spartan does a thermal scan of the building, finds no evidence of the hostages, and walks in. After some fighting, after some tomfoolery on behalf of Phoenix, the building is blown up in a really, really impressive sequence. Lo and behold, the bodies of all the hostages are found in the rubble. Phoenix then accuses John Spartan of being fully aware of their presence and going in anyway, forcing Phoenix to blow up the building. He is exploiting the rather tenuous footing Spartan is already standing on, having this reputation that he does of being a rule breaker and property damage maker. 
using his own powers against him. How and why the LAPD decide to take Phoenix at his word is not addressed, but it does lead to both Spartan and Phoenix being cryogenically frozen. Well, Spartan is sentenced to 70 years of finger quotes rehabilitation mm-hmm. in the cryo penitentiary, which exists some just just three years into the future. Right. Of- <laughs> Between the, the present day of 93 when the film is released and three years later, we've developed the technology to cryo freeze prisoners and also then cerebrally and neurologically implant them with rehabilitative... Reprogram them. Reprogramming. Mm-hmm. I'll buy it. It's fine. I'm into it. But yes, they are both sentenced. Snipes' character, Phoenix, for life, and Spartan for a period of 70 years, I yep. think. Yep, 70. Which seems like an awfully long time for uh, an infraction, given what we know about how the police investigate and discipline their own. But I don't know. It's a movie. It's a movie. <laughs> uh, IA is much stricter in this hellscape of 1996 Los Angeles where you can't land commercial aircrafts anymore. Nope. And lo and behold, we go into the future. The year 2032. Not far enough into the future. Not nearly far (laughs) enough. The year 2032 is upon us. Society has gone, has undergone a major overhaul under the instruction and oversight of one Dr. Raymond Cocteau, played by Nigel Hawthorne. He has removed all things that are bad for you, Mm health-wise. They have eradicated violence in the society. Um, Lots of other changes that we can talk about. Touching, physical intimacy is forbidden. Yep. You can't swear. Everything has gone a little soft. Until one day, Simon Phoenix is awoken from his cryosleep. For a parole hearing, I think. For a parole hearing. And for some reason, knows the verbal password to unlock his restraints. In fact, he knows a lot about this world he's never experienced, navigates it swiftly as he escapes, and is able to locate weapons and uh, start mounting attacks on very feckless police officers who roll up on him in shiny cars, shiny little round jelly bean cars. And use forceful language in order to apprehend their criminals. Yes, that's about it. That's the extent of their <laughs> discipline. They have little shock sticks yep. that probably have less of a pulse in them than a taser or like a cattle prod would. Mm-hmm. But they are completely outgunned and unprepared to deal with a violent threat like Simon Phoenix in their new soft utopian society. Where everyone wears robes. Where everyone wears robes. Yep. And so they use the full extent and force of the law to wake up John Spartan. The suggestion of a one Lenina Huxley, right, whose name is very overtly a reference to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, right, wherein Lenina is the protagonist. Sandra Bullock plays Lenina Huxley, and she is obsessed with the distant past of the 20th century. Of the 20th century, she has a bunch of contraband. She's really into lethal weapons. She's into sports cars and football, and all kinds of things, making her something of a pariah amongst her fellow young cadets, who all were probably born on the cusp of the 20th century, many of them probably in like 1998, 1999. It's so bizarre. And yet they find the distant past of the 20th century just bizarre and strange 
But she, anyway, recommends that they wake up uh, Stallone's character, Spartan, because he's the only person who is formidable enough to take him on. The rest of the cops are just, you know, jelly hands. They don't know what to do with this guy. And so Spartan is awoken and finds the new world oppressive and confusing. And he doesn't know how to operate in it. Mm -mm. He routinely breaks protocols. He can't swear he can't use violence he uses contractions and nobody else in this society does he doesn't know how to utilize uh, new technology in the restroom which we'll talk about yep and worst of all doesn't have access to any guns until he tracks down simon phoenix to a museum which apparently is the only place that firearms exist in this society anymore we don't want to spoil more than that but the film basically is the squaring off of spartan and phoenix in this new utopian society. There's also another subplot, which is relevant to the film of, as you mentioned already, cave dwelling under people led by Edgar Friendly, AKA Dennis Leary, who are living in squalor in protest of the authoritarian rule and cultural hegemony that Raymond Cocteau's character has instilled on modern society. In what we are meant to believe is like, so you know how in if you go to places like where there are ancient ruins, like for example, Rome, the ruins are actually below ground level mm-hmm. because hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands in many cases have passed. And on top of those years passing, earth has like piled upon the civilization, right? So ancient earth is actually below ground. And that's where all the cool shit still is. And so apparently in this movie, like, 1996 Los Angeles is underground. Like, it's not like, oh, they're underground and they're living in the sewer system. And I don't think they meant for us to think that they, like, stood up a society down there. They actually make it look like it's ruins of a pre-apocalyptic or, like, pre-utopian Los Angeles. Right. And they make a a brief suggestion that part of the building upwards and over the rubble was because of a major earthquake that hit the West Coast and and created the current situation. Which I want to talk about later. more than that, it's like this preposterous thing that we keep talking about that somehow we're supposed to believe that in just 36 years... (laughs) The earth has accumulated some hundreds of feet of alluvial strata that have made these weird underground systems and complex uh, tunnels and labyrinthine cityscapes that people can just walk around in and find cool cars. And there's like, you know, greasy spoon diners down there. That There's a lady selling frijoles. There's frijoles. There's rat burgers down there. There's rat burgers. Delicious rat meat. Yes, and so the that subplot that you're talking about is very important impetus to the rest of the movie moving forward. Given that the point of the movie seems to be an argument for a society that isn't so squeaky clean, that doesn't try to eradicate things because it's important to acknowledge dangers and have a means by which to adequately fight and resist dangerous people, violent people, dangerous things in our society. Well, so we should talk about the lore a little bit, the Mm -hmm. the sort of world building of this movie, because I think it's important to all of the other things we want to talk about. And it's actually what makes this movie, I think, super interesting if you spend some time with it. The basic premise of this new utopia, right, is that it solved all of 
the world's problems, to put it plainly. Right. Right? Like all of the ills that we've been facing as a postmodern late 20th century society have been swept away. Diseases are no longer a problem. STDs, which is germane because this is very freshly out of the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and early 90s. The conversations about environmentalism at the time are addressed in this utopia where they've kind of taken care of all of that because everything's clean and there isn't litter and yada, 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 right? And then on top of that, the appeal of the supposed appeal of this new society is that kind of all of your decisions have been made for you and you're free to just kind of roam about leisurely and experience the world as you see fit. Right. You live comfortably. You live comfortably. They've made a world that while there may be a reduction of options in terms of your consumer choice and in terms of what you can say or do or really even think in ways that you can behave here, everyone is taken care of to a certain extent. Everything is fine. So we assume. Mm-hmm. They don't really ever address the societal or systemic things. We just assume that most people live at a relatively comfortable place. Yeah. But you don't really see a lot of the like the general populace. No. Even in the exterior shots and scenes where there are supposedly people around, you only ever see the police. You see the elite who are like Cocteau and his cohorts. Mm-hmm. And then you see the underdwellers. But you don't ever see any people living in the society day to day, really. Except for like as extras around yeah. a Taco Bell. There's like some people in robes in the museum walking around, you know, with their hands behind their backs. Like, so that's... You know, that's the one end of the spectrum. And then... It's the limits to the world building in that sense that we are shown a lot of what we need to see, but nothing extra where they don't quite go deep enough into the lore there to explain, you know, did we end poverty? Did we end hunger? Did we end all of these other things? But a lot of the more topical conversations that were happening at the end of the 20th century, you're right, are addressed through this societal upheaval instigated by Cocteau in the wake of this massive earthquake that we're told about, the big one. Well, and we assume that all of those other things that you're referencing were taken care of because they show us the markers that they would be, right? Everything's clean, everything's modern, you know, so we just have to kind of like take it at face value that all of society's problems have been solved. And they say it overtly as much, you know, in the dialogue at least a couple of times. I think what you're trying to get at here if I may be so bold, is that this movie is not positing this future as an actual utopia. It is It is very blatantly and oftentimes very mockingly critiquing this supposed perfect world that many people in the real world in the early 90s were talking about, right? These environmental issues, these health concerns. And this movie does a really bludgeoning job of poking fun at these idealist fanatics. Right. Like you said, the the entire idea of the movie is making fun of this culture that's going soft. Mm -hmm. That all of the things that we think are actual problems aren't really problems. That they're just intrinsic parts of our life and society that we need to learn to like get over and work through. They're inherent to modernity, but they're, you know, part of greater success of like a consumerist capitalist 
America. Right. And everything that I've read, every drop of critical ink that's been spilled about this movie in the last like 15 years has all been about this being kind of a libertarian fetish, Mm -hmm. right? Of explaining exactly why they don't like the idea of liberal uh, cultural hegemony and, and authoritarianism in a much softer, more delicate way. Yep. And what's interesting about it is that to an extent, the movie actually does kind of posit a world that is reckoning with a lot of the contradictions and ironies of liberal society as we have it today. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's easy to shit on like the libertarian philosophy of, oh, everyone's going to be a soy boy and no Mm -hmm. one's going to know how to fight and no one's going to know how to protect themselves. And so if something bad happens, we're all fucked because, you know, assertive language isn't going to be the thing that saves us from a, a bad guy with a gun. Right. Right. But there is something in observing the world that we live in today that kind of justifies a little bit of that fear because we can't get past this thing which is on display in the film, which is we preserve a lot of the systems and hierarchies in society while just trying to like clean things up a little bit. Yep. Right. Polish up the surface. Exactly. So it's like, I mean, one of the most mocked examples of that is like the soda tax and like the tobacco prohibition in big cities like New York and San Francisco, right? Where Mm -hmm. like certain vapes have been outlawed um, and you can't buy them. And that's supposed to help us save lives because people won't smoke, right? Right. And and from a consumerist perspective, people are like, well, I want to do that. I want to have the liberty to make the decision to ruin my lungs and destroy my body if I want to. And we're focusing so much of our efforts on those things because they're supposed to be these like revelatory cultural wins that make our society more modern and safer and better while not really worrying about the fact that, you know, police brutality still exists and that like Jeff Bezos just became like a 200 billionaire or something like that, you know? Right. Not without addressing like the undercurrent of like big tobacco, like having its hands in a ton of other things that influence people's decisions to smoke or not smoke. Right. Right. And so in Demolition Man in 2032, you see that, oh yeah, like, Things have been sanitized and winnowed down to their most appropriate and palatable versions to make people safe and comfortable. But we still have this massively funded and populated punitive wing of our state, right? Like, totally. If the cops don't need to exist, like, you actually have to kind of ask yourself about the contradiction in the movie, which is if the police are rendered completely ineffective and vestigial in the society why don't we have something that isn't the police to take care of these problems because we cannot imagine a world where the police do not exist even in a movie that is about this like radical future that supposedly will come and it's the thing that immediately discredits and undercuts all of these like libertarian conservative goons because they don't have any actual like imagination when it comes to thinking about how a society would operate outside of those systems right they just assume that those systems and those authorities need to exist because they have always existed and that's in quotes because they haven't always existed yep And assume that society can only change on the plane and surface of cultural evolution or cultural destruction into this monolith. There's no imagination on like the structural plane, right? Of like how society is organized and what systems we have in place. Those things are all preserved and maintained to the point where there's a scene where we're first introduced to the 2032 police force and they're literally all just 
standing in a room, like a big circular room, and they're all standing around. And when an alarm gets activated somewhere, all 50 police officers in shot don't know what to do. So it really does beg the question, like, why are they there at all? Right. And how did we get, you know, almost 40 years into the future with this really well-funded, highly employed police force with all of these people sitting around not understanding what to do when an alarm bell goes off? Yep. The suspension of disbelief to watch this movie is crucial, but also impossible. <laughs> it, you're right. It's both those things. And it's, it's funny because this is a movie that I think there's a lot of reverence for this movie in certain circles of people who find it fun. And and the tone is, is it, it permits that level of enjoyment mm-hmm. because it doesn't ever take itself so seriously. Like this is not a no. really urgent, like dystopian, it's not. like police thriller. It has its tongue firmly in its cheek. Mm-hmm. It knows it's silly. It even, I mean has preposterous weird stuff like the three seashells, right? Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, happens at least twice over the course of Spartan's awakening into this universe. He doesn't bother to learn how to use them the first time and just swears enough that he gets paper to wipe himself. Yes. We don't see him do it again, though he does come in contact with those seashells, positing that John Spartan, for a majority of this film, is run around fighting crime in a sanitized... 2030 Los Angeles with crusty doo-doo ass. No, he's not. If anything, he can knit himself a wipe. <laughs> That's right. Part of his rehabilitation is that he has become a seamstress, which is what he calls himself, despite the fact that what he's actually <laughs> doing is just being very proficient with knitting needles. And he makes a sweater. He's been reprogrammed to be a knitter. That's the way that he can contribute to this new society. And mm-hmm. it's the perfect example of what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Which is... Taking something like John Spartan, who was like a really violent, really hyperactive, roided out police officer and law enforcement agent in our old society. What's the best possible use for somebody like that in our new society? Oh, we're going to teach him how to knit. You know, it again shows just like this weird lack of imagination on behalf of these people developing this idea of society that doesn't say like, oh, like surely that person could be reformed into somebody who could offer something more useful to our society than making us sweaters. But but it's the thing that plays into their hand, which is everybody's gone soft. The only thing that anybody knows how to do is put on helmets to, to come and wipe their asses with shells and knit sweaters and eat health food at a Taco Bell. Yeah. That's the extent because, of this existence. Because the, the, the new utopia is not there to offer a viable alternative in this universe, mm-hmm. right? Like it is only there as a point of contention upon which we reflect back to and like opine for the good old days when I think it was some review said a kiss was a kiss, a man was a man, and like you, you know, solved all the world's problems with might and violence. And that's what this movie is telling us that we should want, right? Right. It it wants tradition. It wants conservatism. It wants a culture and society that feels familiar and doesn't have to think about or make any efforts to solve these problems, which weren't problems in my day. It's just, yes, a call for... Tradition. Totally. And and very classic, rudimentary, archetypal embodiments of masculinity and femininity 
and culture at large. And it's name calling anyone who wants to address issues like environmentalism or a very serious health crisis like the AIDS epidemic or any other uh, function of the modern age. It's name calling those people as, you know, fanatics or like soy boys or whatever it is, right? Like it is not entertaining the things that um, that that sort of activism is after. Whether that solves the world's problems or not is not, you know, what I'm going to get into. But it, but the the mere fact that it's using these issues and the people who care about them as a point of derision is like fascinating to me because if you situate yourself back into the early 90s and take a look at the cultural conversations happening, those were the things that were being talked about. And there was a very strong push on a more conservative right that these things were not the issues we should worry about. We needed to worry about militarization and domestic and foreign affairs that allowed us to exercise our might through violence. Right. And, you know, you don't even have to look back that far. Like, yes, a lot of these cultural conversations were sort of in their fledgling state, I feel like, in the 90s. And, and you know, we were constantly getting the wool thrown over us, thinking about military interventions and, yep. and a lot of possible threats to our American way of life. Totally. You know? But that rhetoric hasn't change. It absolutely has not. Like if you spent any time this last week watching the RNC, you saw the what the fuck is their name? The McCluskeys, the St. Louis gun couple. Those guys. Who I'm from St. Louis. Fuck you both. I'm just gonna say that and I'm leaving it in the episode. Mm-hmm. Fuck you both. But they showed up at the RNC and called Cory Bush, you know, our Democratic congressional candidate, a liberal Marxist, which doesn't make any sense. Zero first sense. of all. Uh, But it's the same rhetoric, right? Which is using these derisive terms to say these people are authoritarians and red baiting the fuck out of anybody who wants anything even resembling like a social safety net or some sort of societal program that would actually diminish the need for law and order and coercive punitive force and all of these oppressive hierarchies in our society. They love pointing the finger at these people and calling them Marxists. Jordan Peterson does this all the time. He calls them like postmodern neo-Marxists, which is a thing he made up. Doesn't mean anything. It didn't, but I just <laughs> I imagine like a Jordan Peterson lecture just being a bunch of like incel chuds, like sweating in a room, like picking their pimples, watching Demolition Man, and him just saying like, this is the world that the liberal Marxists want. That's what he sounds like. Yeah. And I just assume that that is, is where this goes. It's interesting that this, this point of conflict you know, existed then and still exists now. It looks a little bit different, but it the trappings are still the same. Right. And there isn't a, a really holistic and comparable alternative to that vision of despair and authoritarianism from the other side. And no, there isn't. And it's kind of what I was saying, which is like, in a sense, like the thing that is the scariest about this movie is that, you know, libertarians and conservatives point to it and say this is the future that liberals want and liberals basically just kind of stop short of saying no here is what we actually want and just saying not really or even asking the question of like oh what's so wrong with that 
And it's like, no, you're, you're, you're accepting the premise. Like, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, like I said, you know, this, this movie shows a world that doesn't know how to reckon with that incompatibility and those contradictions inherent in it, where it's like, we're going to let capitalist institutions and like corporations like control our food consumption. And they're going to like work the market into this weird neoliberal hegemony where everything is a Taco Bell. Mm -hmm. But also it's not really Taco Bell. It's just the name Taco Bell because all we have is health foods now. Yep. And we also have like this massive police force and everybody drives the same kind of Lexus or whatever the car is in this. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so it, it plays firmly on the playing field already established and tries to make these minor cultural wins of like sanitation that make things feel like they're better. And it's kind of a thing that we observe in the world. Like it's a, it's a thing that we see with a bunch of like the performative wins on behalf of like the current moment with the Black Lives Matter protests instead of like meaningful police reform actually being approached or addressed in any way. Where the scariest part about the movie is that actually we're kind of on our way there. Mm -hmm. And that sucks to say because I want to be able to laugh at this and say like, no, this is stupid and libertarians are stupid for having such a lack of imagination that this thing is the best they could come up with for some weird liberal idea of a, of a future. Right. But there are elements of this where I'm like, oh, yeah, like it seems like someone actually might want that to be the way that this is like we go about addressing this issue like that is. It, it, you know, the, it's it's a, a band-aid on like an open wound. Yeah. And our world currently is is the worst of both worlds because we've still got police brutality <laughs> and a massively funded violent police state. But that's uh, that's for uh, later in the conversation. Um, go ahead. I was just going to say that I wouldn't mind with Taco Bell being slightly healthier, by the way, because we've got a Taco Bell canteen in the neighborhood. Cantina. Cantina. I've never been. Nor do I want to, but if they were suddenly like, oh, we're actually like not serving dog meat tacos, it's like going to be real beef, I would be like, hey, I'd go there. I would do that. It's an upgrade. There we go. I want to talk about a couple of things. I think there's definitely a conversation for us to have around this movie as another artifact of the PR efforts of the early 90s post uh, Rodney King um, for police in America, specifically the LAPD. But I want to talk about a couple of other things first that are interesting little, you know, nuggets in the movie that I kind of pulled out and was like, what? Okay, what's here? Where, where did this come from? Just pulling some threads. Not really. Just like okay. Googling some shit. Um, <laughs> well, tell me what you found. <laughs> so I think one of the things that um, is really interesting about a lot of the quick expository conversations that happen when they're catching Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes characters up to the many, many years that have passed. All 36 of those All 36 years. of them. And, and if you pull some of them out, you can actually find uh, the trappings of what was happening at the time as we were talking about and like fears that um, I think people of the time had. Okay. For example... When um, they talk about uh, this new metropolis that they're living in called San Angeles being a kind of amalgamation, a landmass that came together in the big one of 2010, referring to an earthquake. Earthquakes are a thing in California. And as a Bay Area born and bred human, it is a thing that I have had stitched into me from the beginning right. that an earthquake is just gonna happen and you've got to figure out how to be prepared for it and we're doing drills in school i haven't even i've only been in the bay area 
since 2013. And I feel like even on the news in popular media since like 89, when the last big one happened, they have been talking about a bigger one happening. Oh, yeah. Well, science is telling us that it's for sure going to happen. And in the early 90s, Southern California was experiencing a lot of big ones. So I actually fell down a rabbit hole of doing earthquake research, okay, <laughs> like historical earthquake research of Southern California. I actually got my associates in seismology while we were doing <laughs> some preparation for this film. Um, that's, Do tell. That's the real word for it. You're right. I just call it earthquake Googling. Earthquake science. Um, so, so I was like thinking about, I was like, that's a really interesting thing that they use as a, you know, plot point to, or rather a historical event that took place to make the world in which they are currently in, what was driving that. And I knew in uh, in the early 90s, because I was, you know, uh, a child at the time, but old enough to, like, remember the conversations, that there were actually a lot of earthquakes happening in Southern California. And so I did some research and found that there were, like, seven pretty size- sizable earthquakes in Southern California between 1988 and 1992 okay when this happened and i'm talking like a four point something or higher on the richter scale but more than southern california has general experiences well and and i think the thing that made them notable when i was kind of digging into this is that a lot of land mass shifts happened so there was a lot of um there were earthquakes that like weren't necessarily that large but because they happened in a certain area where there were a lot of hillsides or there was erosion happening that like all of the debris that fell, you know, kind of changed um, the landscape and also caused more destruction than would have if, you know, it was just like a field somewhere. So in 1992, there was an earthquake in Southern California called the Joshua Tree earthquake. And it had a foreshock which I didn't know existed until I was doing this research, of magnitude 4.6. And and then actually, ha- and the earthquake itself was about 6.1 or something like that. Okay. These are sizable earthquakes. In the two months following, some 6,000 aftershocks took place on varying scales of, of magnitude. Were all of those earthquakes also named after U2 records? No. Okay. The Octoon Baby Quake of 1991. Yes. Yeah. Um, so a couple months after that Joshua Tree earthquake, there was the Landers earthquake, which actually split open the surface of the Mojave Desert. It was like a 7.2 or a 7.3 magnitude, and it was the largest earthquake to hit Southern California in 40 years. That's crazy. And so, you know, they toss this thing like the big one of 2010 out but the fact of the matter is, is that the terrain of Southern California was shifting on a weekly to monthly basis with all of these earthquakes, um, sometimes more noticeably than other times, but it was happening. I think it's really telling that that is a singular point of inflection for this new world to be created um, and a new landmass to emerge from, you know, the rubble of the big one of 2010. Right. It's the entire impetus for the new world being built the way it was. I actually, one of the things that I think that this movie gets really right is the idea of a desperate populace 
acquiescing to the direction and to the credence of somebody who has a plan, mm-hmm. right? We saw it play out in the wake of 9-11 mm-hmm. with people willing to suspend and relinquish a lot of their individual freedoms in order for a feeling of safety. Yes. But it happens all the time. It happened in, in New Orleans after Katrina as well. And the, the thing that I think about immediately as it pertains to the society that's getting built is the disaster capitalism model that Naomi Klein talks about in The Shock Doctrine. Oh, right. Where basically in times of regime change or uh, societal collapse or upheaval, and then, you know, even in the the wake of later on like terrorist attacks and tropical storms or, or some sort of catastrophic natural disaster, capitalists come in and rebuild a society that serves them and the elites more because people are distracted by having to try to cater to their most immediate material needs, which are in danger because there is danger. Precisely. And so it's one of the few plot points of this movie where I was like, actually, that is exactly what happens. Like people with a plan step in and build a society that most directly benefits them and the people who seek to profit who are like in their corner and those people take over and create a society and other people are willing to relinquish a lot of those individual liberties and really willing to relinquish a lot of their decisions and choices and freedoms in order to just say yeah go ahead rebuild the thing make it better to have their basic needs met because they're left utterly destitute after a disaster right yeah it's important to me that we say that there are some good things about this movie That is one of them where I was like, that hits the nail on the head. And I just found it really, really interesting that that was that they chose a massive earthquake to be the the point of inflection that all this change um, happened after. And the other thing that was really interesting that I sort of picked at was was this idea of the franchise wars, which they also referenced sort of expositorily nonchalantly to say like when they're they're going to you know dinner one night Cocteau is hosting a a dinner to celebrate John Spartan's emergence from the ice (laughs) and saving his life supposedly and saving his life supposedly and they're banqueting at Taco Bell they're banqueting at Taco Bell and Sly gives a double take and is like what Taco Bell and Sandra's That's a like, really, really good Sylvester Stallone, by the way. No, it was not, but you're nice to say so. And Sandra says, oh, yes, uh, they're the only um, restaurant that, that was left after the franchise wars. And that's sort of all we hear about it. It's, it's You're left to imply how violent and vicious those franchise wars uh, became. I worked at Best Buy when I was a teen, right in the midst of the format wars mm-hmm. for digital video oh do you yeah. remember this happening yes i totally do where there was hd dvd and blu-ray mm-hmm. a lot like the like cd a track kind of you know situation that that happened before that where sony invested heavily in blu-ray mm-hmm. and put a blu-ray player in the playstation 3 mm-hmm. and xbox decided that they were going to create an external adapter drive that played uh hd dvd mm-hmm Well, we all know who won that format war. Yes. But these kind of things do play out. And usually it's just like consumer decisions happening. But it's interesting to consider the fact that, yeah, maybe like the quick access to relatively cheap, familiar, comfortable fast food was a thing that 
was a necessity in a society that was at a loss in a lot of other places materially and socioeconomically where yeah maybe taco bell did end up winning out because they like undercut the prices of everything else and figured out a way to make their brand better than the others well and what's fascinating to me about this rather insouciant remark about the franchise wars is that what it's really admitting to is the just insanely violent nature of capitalism right, right? that it, that it is like in a laissez-faire capitalist society like actually about the violence inherent in the market and the competition that bleeds people dry and leaves only the strongest few at the top it, i mean it, it is it is it is war right, right? It's, it is, so it's market darwinism it totally is and and i and i was kind of picking this apart and i was like taco bell like taco bell like what and i was remembering how how prevalent taco bell was for californians in particular mm-hmm. on the west coast in the late 80s and early 90s at never mind my high school years as well but that was a different story but it really had this boom during that time it was doing immensely well however if you're about to extrapolate as to why taco bell was the winner of the franchise wars the actual behind the scenes is simply that Burger King and McDonald's said they didn't want to do it. Well, no. So I want to get into I want to get into the consumerism of this movie. Okay. So that's a good segue. It's interesting to me that in a seemingly innocuous comment that is meant to just sort of be you know expository in nature to say to catch you up to what's happened, they're actually unpacking a lot of really dense ideology around the violence inherent in capitalism around like the uh you know the bent of consumers toward things that are convenient and cheap and uh not always like the best for you despite the fact that like now everything's healthy in this movie it's also like all of this like interesting stuff in this one little throwaway sentence that you know like you said could have been it could have been any franchise could have been any fast food franchise that decided to dip its money into this movie i just thought that part was super super wild i think it's really fascinating and it's also interesting because it points directly to the irony of the argument that's being made by the text and also by libertarianism itself which is that the one thing that they want is like a laissez-faire economy in which competition thrives and consumer choice gets to like dictate the market but then they also don't realize that the way that Capitalism yields a tremendous level of like inequality and also that certain consumer loyalty means that other companies and other brands don't get to thrive and have to basically like tap out of the game. So it's this weird thing where there's this scene where Edgar Friendly remarks on wanting the opportunity to make conscious consumer choices. And I actually just want to read it because I don't want to get it wrong because it's such like an insane quote. Dennis Leary says at one point to Sylvester Stallone, you see, according to Cocteau's plan, I'm the enemy because I like, I like to, to think. think. I like to read. I'm into freedom of speech and freedom of choice. I'm the kind of guy who likes to sit in a greasy spoon and wonder, gee, should I have the T-bone steak or the jumbo rack of barbecue ribs with the side order of gravy fries? I want high cholesterol. I want to eat bacon and butter and buckets of cheese, okay? I want to smoke a Cuban cigar the size of Cincinnati in a non-smoking section. I want to run through the streets naked with green jello all over my body reading Playboy magazine. Why? Because I suddenly might feel the need to, okay, pal? I've seen the future. You know what it is? You know what it is? It's a 47-year-old virgin sitting around in his beige pajamas drinking a banana broccoli shake singing I'm an Oscar Mayer wiener what's so fascinating about that is that like we've already said 
it shows just this profound lack of imagination on behalf of people who argue and think this way, which we've seen play out in our society very recently with the shelter in place and lockdown protests, oh, totally. by the way, where all that these people really want is to exercise the one single freedom that they're afforded under capitalism, which is I want to be able to go out and buy things yep. and contribute to the market and to the system and to choose what I spend my money on instead of having to stay home and be bored. The only thing that lets me know I'm alive in late stage capitalist America is my ability to fucking buy shit. What these people don't realize is that the end result is the same. Like whether it's through this weird liberal hegemony and authoritarianism that says, don't curse, don't eat cholesterol, and rat burgers are bad for you. Like a free market system and economy will eventually strangle everything that can't compete and keep up. And that's, so by <laughs> that's the wild thing is that the logical end to a completely free market the logical end to capitalism at its fundamentalist, at its most fundamentalist bent is one winner taking all. Right. Is choice being eradicated. And what's funny is that like that is a thing that is presented to us as this oppressive authoritarian element of modern society. What it fails to acknowledge is that wasn't a thing that was decided by Cocteau. He instilled a bunch of these regulations and rules, but doesn't seem to have actually had a hand materially in making Taco Bell the winner of the franchise wars. Right. That was a thing that market capitalism did on its own. Mm -hmm. And so this thing that's like, oh, what a terrible world it would be if Taco Bell was the only fast food option is like, that wasn't his choice. That wasn't, that was actually a thing that was totally hands off that yields the same result as putting your fingerprints all over everything and saying, no sex, no drugs, no fun. It is the logical end to a completely free market. And that is the thing that like n many people forget to play out or don't know enough to play out when they're talking about like why capitalism is great and, and, and all that jazz. Anyways, my point being, there are just so many fascinating nuggets in this movie, fascinating trappings of the time and, and things that also made me think about those trappings applying to my current lived experience. Like I just, um, you know, in the same moment that I was like rolling my eyes and bemoaning like a line delivery from Lord love him. I love Sylvester Stallone, but the less he talks in this movie, the better. Yeah. I was also really like nerding out about a toss away detail that they, made as some offhand remark about why they listen to jingles or whatever it is. Like there's just so much, there there is so much interesting stuff happening in the world building that if you pick it apart, there's actually way more there than I think they're meaning for there to be. Absolutely. Like it's not on purpose. It's not, but it's not devoid of creativity. No. Like, when I say lack of imagination, I mean purely in the argument it's articulating about the society. About the ideology, right. totally. Not about the movie itself. Mm -hmm. The movie itself has a lot going on that is eye-catching, that is thought-provoking, as I hope we are articulating well here, and is just like all around fun to engage with. The last thing I want to bring up, this like rabbit hole that this movie made me go down, on on the, the point of consumerism, 
There are so many overt product placements in this movie, right? Which, you know, I think we can speak to um, just one being a function of movie making, period, regardless of genre, regardless of time. Um, But two, uh, that Marco Brambilla um, had a commercial making background. And there are like, you know, lots of pops of color and, and the product placement feels very commercially at times. And that also, you know, we've made this argument previously that in the early to mid 90s, there was a lot of voracious consumerism happening in America. And so I was like, you know, kind of seeing some of the the brands and the labels and and the names and the jingles that were being tossed out throughout this movie. And um, it led me down this path of digging a little bit deeper into the the cars because I was really fascinated by the cars in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that they were all General Motors makes. And I know the General Motors portfolio because my dad has always wanted us to have American-made cars. And so I always just knew all the brands growing up. And in doing some digging, found out that um, General Motors actually very purposefully partook in this movie Mm. and made 18 prototypes for these like modern vehicles that populate the movie. Okay. And then the other cars that are in the movie are actual Oldsmobile Auroras, which were a model that were going to come out in the following spring of like 94 or something, whatever it was. And it's because... (laughs) General Motors, you know, one, they, of course, wanted to, like, send the message that, like, we're still here in 2032, right? Making cars. And don't go buy that, like, Honda that you want to go get. Right. None Um, of of the foreign import compacts. Only American-made cars. Only American-made cars. And specifically Oldsmobile, because I noticed that one of the key scenes in the movie revolves around an Oldsmobile and takes place in an Oldsmobile dealership. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> so there's a scene in the movie when Sylvester Stallone <laughs> emerges from this underground world in a 1970 Oldsmobile something or other. I don't remember the make and the model or the, I don't remember the model. And they elevate her up through the surface of the ground mm-hmm. into this kind of like, very modern looking car dealership that is an Oldsmobile car dealership of 2032. And it says says something like, oh, so they they come up through the ground, they're in an Oldsmobile dealership and scrawled across the ceiling is the phrase, believe in the future. And there's Oldsmobile logos everywhere. And they're Uh in this 1970 Oldsmobile that just busted through the ground is still in mint condition, yep. ticking like clockwork. Right. And and Sly has a huge boner for this car. Huge boner. And also a boner for Sandra for knowing the car. For knowing what the car is. And so Oldsmobile, um, these Oldsmobile Auroras, which were real uh, models at the time, are populating the the streets of the movie this this old Oldsmobile pops up through the ground to commence a very uh, important car chase scene in the movie and pops up into a Oldsmobile dealership, yeah, it's an like Oldsmobile a, dealership that says, believe in the future. It's like a 15 minute, 15 second rather, 
Oldsmobile ad in the middle of the movie. So quite literally, and I really thank the New York Times reporter who who wrote about this because I was nerding out when I was reading about this. The GM execs at the time wanted Oldsmobile to have the most prominent sort of place in this landscape because it was the brand that was doing the the poorest of all of the General Motors um, vehicles. And they wanted to kind of like brush up its image and say like, hey, it's still here. And actually like, it's the future of, of vehicles in America. On top of that, Oldsmobile print ads in real world 1993 America actually featured the showroom from this movie that the set designers made of the dealership. Did they use the slogan? They used that slogan and another another slogan that was like, if you're a follower, the future will take shape. But if you're a leader, a leader, you shape the future or something. So they had all of this like very, you know, powerful ethos of survival and and shaping the future. And then the last thing I'll say that I, I found in doing my research is that they were so fixated on this showroom that was built for the movie that they actually shipped it to Michigan, where Jesus. Oldsmobile was headquartered, in their Aurora Vision Center, they called it, where they were doing a lot of R&D for future cars. And just made it a showroom? And and made it a space where they were doing research and development Wild. for future Oldsmobile cars. There's the consumerism that's being you know talked about and sort of commented on in the movie. But then there's the actual consumerist impetuses that are driving the landscape and the artifacts of the movie itself that were playing out very materially in the real world in the form of like ads and actual cars being made. Like I just found it fucking fascinating. Yeah, well, and it's like, it ends up working in conjunction with sort of like the dialectical premise of the movie, right? Which is like by the, the end of the film, Sylvester Stallone has beaten Simon Phoenix and Cocteau is dead. And so his authoritarian reign is over. The cops kind of help. The underpeople kind of help. And at the end, Sly just bastardizes like Hegelian philosophy and is like, you guys, you cops get dirtier. You underpeople get a little cleaner and meet somewhere in the middle. Meet somewhere in the middle. Right. And so it's just like, <laughs> you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis kind of thing that happens where it's like, the real thing that will set us all free is reverting back to a society in which we have more consumer option and less of this authoritarian cultural oppression. And that's really it. To say nothing of the fact that Sly has basically just like done regime change through violent militaristic force. And then like solves it with a whip of his pen, you know, in one offhanded remark. And it, the, the funny thing about what you're saying in terms of the consumerism side of this is that when you think about it plot-wise, Snipes and Stallone are actually kind of on the same side of the coin here. They are. Where they both find this future society like a total wash and complete bullshit. But the movie ends up just sort of devolving into a good guy versus a bad guy situation. And preserving that level of like consumer culture being good and necessary and a thing to desire and a thing that will ultimately win out in a free society where everyone has what they really need, and he does it all in an Oldsmobile. And it's totally, it's not only fetishized in the movie, but it's its very functionally driving 
the material apparatus of the movie itself, right? right? Like, I think about the hand that corporations and institutions like the police state have in shaping the media that we consume. Yeah. Yeah, it's important to consider all of those sort of external machinations of this thing. We definitely touched on this with Speed a few weeks ago. And we touched on it to a lesser extent with Falling Down when we talked about that film. And the more of these movies that I watch from this particular era, if there's a cop in them in any capacity, it's just becoming more and more blatantly apparent to me how much Hollywood just functioned as a psyop for like police rehabilitation and how all of the output of mainstream cinema and television to an extent too. And video games. Thank you, Taylor Grimes. We're all just reinforcing this particular worldview and ideology as it pertains to our law enforcement and the necessity of them in our society that is playing out in real time still today. Yes. And watching this movie is no different. While there's like definitely the consumer element of this, the capitalist element of this, the other thing that this movie makes a really profound and distinct argument for is the necessity of police willing to be tough on crime and willing to pull the trigger and willing to take the chance of like property damage and destruction in the name of law and order. And willing to break the rules, right? Right. Sylvester Stallone's character, John Spartan, is a habitual, if not like constant rule breaker. And that is actually a a point of pride for him. And so what is it saying that this is like the type of person who we want to be a police officer? It's just, yeah, right. there's a lot there. It's the it's the reinforcement of the warrior mentality thing that we talk about, which is like in Speed, it was more about, oh, these are good guys. They're heroes. They're competent. They're willing to like play the game, follow the rules and do so in a way where they, you know, take some chances and and aren't looking to just like sand down the rough edges, but they will save the day and get the job done. Mm -hmm. This movie is even more blatant and explicit in the sense that it just says, don't mind and don't question the way the cops do their job so long as the outcome is the same. There's even a moment where they're watching like television footage of John Spartan saving the day in the future, you know, watching like a a pre-recorded interview where a, a reporter asks him, you did, you know, X millions of dollars with the property damage and the, the ransom for the little girl was only $250,000. Do you feel like you overdid it? And the little girl says, fuck you, lady. Yeah. And he <laughs> says, right. good answer. And like, that's the exchange where it's basically them saying like, don't ask how I do this. Don't ask. Don't have, Don't ask how much money it costs. Right. Right. It's necessary. It's necessary. Whatever decisions we make in order to achieve the desired result of stopping the bad guy and saving the public are warranted and justified because we know what we're doing. Yeah, if we need $1 billion to do our jobs as police officers for the city of wherever the fuck, that's what we need. Stop taking money away from us or t- talking about taking money away from us. And it's like- It's wild. It's wild. It's And it's all that fucking movies did in this period, I guess. After we watched this movie and I like thought about it one day again, I literally just tweeted, everything's a fucking psyop. Like that, that's, that's my takeaway from this movie is like, we're just being brainwashed all the time. Yeah, I mean, there's like psyop, you could also call it public relations. There's, you know, there's different angles. Yes, but I, I 
I like my tinfoil hat adjacent rhetoric. You do. And conspiratorial thinking. It's fun sometimes. But yeah, it totally is. It's it's totally another public relations artifact of the rehabilitation, specifically of the Los Angeles Police Department right. post Rodney King. Just And even the start of the movie in 96 where LA has descended into chaos, there's almost the extrapolation and interpretation of that as being a world in which we continue to riot and protest police brutality and make the the, the city of Los Angeles this rotted, burning hellscape that is unsafe for civilians because of all of the turmoil that's been There is the explicit connection. A 1993 movie-going audience, specifically one in... Southern California would absolutely look outside at the chaos of their city and look at the chaos on screen of a 1996 Los Angeles. It is not a mistake that that first, that first entrance into the movie is only three years into the future. That is very purposeful. Right. Why they didn't make 2032 later, why they didn't make it like 2093 or something, I don't know. We'll but that know. first jump three years ahead is proximate for a reason right they wanted audiences to make the connection to what was happening in los angeles at the time or what had happened very recently to hey guys this is where we're headed yeah it it, it almost seems like scaremongering a little bit where it's like it's totally that. this is the dystopian vision of the future that you all want if you keep telling us what we need to do yeah which is one of the reasons this movie should not be overlooked, despite its the the necessity for suspension of disbelief and the impossibility of that task. It's still a fascinating artifact. It's really fun to watch. It is. And like we hinted at at the beginning of the show, there are some things in this movie to like. One of those things is definitely the performances on behalf of some of these people doing good work in spite of a script that is... Uh, abysmal. It is abysmal. It's terrible. There's a thing that bad science fiction and satire always does where they make future speak essentially just the use of a thesaurus badly. Mm-hmm. Where they just like replace a word in a sentence with a word with more syllables and say cannot and do not instead of can't and don't. Like the this one that I think of explicitly is when Sandra is driving Sly to Taco Bell and he's like why are we can't believe we're going to Taco Bell whatever whatever like I like Mexican food whatever and she says oh John Spartan your tone is quasi facetious but you do not realize that Taco Bell is the only restaurant in our society (laughs) after Taco Bell won the franchise war and it's like it's just robotic but also abysmal and bad I kind of liked the architecture of the future speak of 2032. Some of, them, some of them are a little bit inspired. It's, 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 some of them are clever and, and it's a little bit silly and it at least makes the delivery of what would otherwise be like terrible lines interesting. Like it kind of keeps you on your toes because you're like, what is she saying? Oh, she's saying you're being sarcastic. I'm trying to remember what their expression for calm down is. Enhance your calm. Enhance your calm. That was one of my favorite ones. I'm probably just going (laughs) to start using that. I love that one. It's really, really good. It's really good. Like I said, some of them are inspired and 
because it's Sandra Palooza, we should definitely talk about her and Wesley and Sly doing the work that they do. Yes. I think that Sandra manages to be, as always, charming and bubbly and adorable here. In spite of them doing a lot to, like, desexualize her. Like, she's supposed to be the object of admiration and desire. Mm -hmm. But they don't do a good job of making her particularly, like, aesthetically desirable or, like, sexualized in any way. Which is maybe part of the point of, like, the repression of the society. They do they don't. I mean, when they they go to the Taco Bell feast, she's in, like, this backless, short, chainmail cocktail dress. And it's very sexual. But, you know, she's, like, saying weird stuff and speaking like a robot. So it's not, like, <laughs> it's not, you know, overtly sexual in the ways that we're used to. Right. I was thinking when I was watching this movie that for as formidable a platter it's supposed to be to serve us up to very well-known and famous action stars of mm-hmm. the time, Wesley Snipes and Sylvester Stallone, and for as much you know, popping and violence and action that there is between them and within their characters, Sandra manages to play an equally as impactful third to their two, but just in a different way. She stands up to two really noteworthy, really bankable stars Mm -hmm. as a relative newcomer. Like this is one of the very first things she did. One of the earliest, bigger movies she did. Yeah, she comes away from this movie being a really, really memorable and remarkable performer and carrying a considerable, like you said, weight, uh, you know, sharing the load of a lot of this movie and being sort of this person who is occupying that kind of like sage mentor to the fish out of water Sylvester Stallone. So she has a lot to do and a lot of exposition and a lot of things to explain, but manages to break through and penetrate that singular purpose of her character and become something that is engaging, interesting, and still charming and like relatable on film. Which is, I mean, that's so hard to do with all of the things they're they're bogging her down with. It's like her and it's Hawthorne, who are the only two that manage to navigate like the strangulation of this terribly myopic world Mm -hmm. that they are situating them in. They're the only two actors that manage to navigate the world and the language deftly. And yeah, no one else knows how to do it. No one else knows how to do it. Which is one of the things that I realize on reflection. The reason that Stallone and Snipes walk away unscathed is because they're the only two people who don't have to. They do not have to. Right, because they're men... Uh, in a different world, they're, they're fish out of water. They're prehistoric. They're ancient. Right. They're a whole 36 years old. Literally, on more than one occasion, they refer to John Spartan as ancient. As a dinosaur. <laughs> like, right. It's like, this was this was 30... This was literally 35 you years ago. You have a guy <laughs> who was on the police force with him in the 90s, still on the police force, and you guys are treating them like they're like dinosaurs that you just dug up like these guys remember like your parents remembered this shit totally it's so weird it's it's just a it's a, it's a weird thing that could have easily been remedied and rectified by just like another like 30 or 40 years in the future 40 years into you the know? future just make it closer to like 2100 and we're fine so weird right i will say and i'm not being hyperbolic when i state this i was transfixed with sandra she managed to be like sparkly and alight 
when she's delivering these like totally clownish lines and just speaking, you know, this robotic language, she still injects it with personality and like irreverence. And I just, I couldn't take my eyes off of her and, and wanted to hear every single word out of her mouth whenever she was on screen. And I can't say that about anyone else in this movie. It's no coincidence that this movie likely landed her the role in Speed. Totally. I mean, she's just a standout here, especially when you've got Wesley Snipes, who's also doing a ton of really fun stuff, but doesn't doesn't have as much depth, I think, to his character. He's. Uh, he, I was going to say, he is sold short by the fact that the villain is very boring. Like his, very boring. His motivation and his externalities are almost non-existent like yep. like they're he's just like a bad guy and he's eccentric and you know he's having fun with the role mm-hmm. which thank god because sly is just being sly but half of his dialogue is just completely inaudible and inarticulate <laughs> he's just mumbling half the time lord love and, no I, I do i love sly but it's just not <laughs> like the role requires a little bit more elocution and nuance to like how he's articulating things because there is world building and questions that need to be answered and yep. things that we need to help define his character. And he's just not up for the task. He's just not capable of it. But Snipes is doing good work. I wish that they had given him more to do. Totally. There were a couple of threads that I wanted them to pull, like the kind of psychological dissonance that he has between this reprogramming that has been done to him at the behest of Cocteau, where he's, you know, has this one singular drive to go find Friendly and kill him. And he knows all the passwords and he knows how to navigate the world, but then also has like remnants of his own agency that pop up. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted them to do more with that. And they didn't really, they just kind of like made it so that eventually he like okay, Jesse Ventura to kill Cocteau. Like. Right. And then and then Jesse Ventura does. And then Jesse Ventura does. And then Spartan just freezes him in the, the cryo chamber. Knocks his head clean off. It is a good moment. It is. But that fight scene is preposterous. It's not only preposterous, but it is a fucking slog. It's a slog. I was just like... When is this going to be over? Uh, like well, every second that went on, I was like, okay... I get it. No. I have no sense of space. This is the other. This is the other thing I was going to bring up. Yeah, he does, Brambilla does not do a good job. He's of, too close. He's too close on these right. action scenes. And, and he doesn't know how to create a sense of depth and space in his environments to make the action scenes really flourish. And and so nothing had stakes for me because I didn't know where everything was. Right, like I couldn't situate the dynamic between the two of them in a space. Where I, I thought like, okay, there's there's this here and there's this here and this is how far apart they are. And he's grabbing this thing from here. So the, the consequences of the movements that take place would mean something. But all of that was stripped out because he was pressed way in on them. And so I was just like, I don't know where the fuck they are in this space or who's pulling at what. And so none of this means anything to me. Right. The, he's at his best when he is doing things that feel a little bit more familiar to the advertising and commercial space. Particularly, there's that really colorful, very vivid cerebral sex scene where mm-hmm. they put on their helmets that has like a lot of like cool kind of- I actually loved that scene. Like audio cues and and visually is like really interesting and a little bit just more subjective. Not uninspired all the time, but when you 
are watching a movie that is an action movie and the action scenes are the worst part of it, you know you're running into some trouble. Fortunately, the movie around it has some interesting things going on. It's populated by cool characters. Benjamin Bratt is there for a minute doing silly stuff. Rob totally. Schneider, right? Like all of these guys are game for, for the movie, which mm-hmm. is probably, I think, the most inspiring and rewarding thing about it, which is like... Everyone seems really on board with this thing. Like, even Nigel Hawthorne, who's, like we said, a really prestigious actor, seems like he's at least trying to show up and do the work and, and not... Oh, he you know, was there for it. Yeah, he's not like Alec Guinness in Star Wars or something. No. He's just, like, <laughs> wanting to murder George Lucas. Like, and you can see it in his eyes. Yeah. You know? It, he was he was on board. He at, was. At least at a surface level. <laughs> Everyone is game. Everyone shows up. And... Obviously, there's enough about this movie to talk about that it can fill some time in your in your psyche for a little while. I mean, if nothing else, you get to see a really fantastic Sandra Bullock performance. You get to potentially model some really inspired wardrobe uh, decisions off of Wesley Snipes' character. And there's a lot to ruminate on about the commentary around police reform. And like, I mean... If nothing else, you've got those three things going for this movie and why someone should watch it. Not to mention seismology. Right. And, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff. All of the science degrees that you can earn after you're inspired to do so by the nature and subtext of this film. I mean, I think it's really, I think it says something that this movie had me going down a lot of really interesting rabbit holes. Yeah, and there's a lot of, a lot of writing on this movie, way more than I thought there would be, way more than speed, mm-hmm. to be sure. Like I put the name of the movie into the search bar there and yielded a lot of very recent modern critical writings on this piece. So the movie endures. Uh, Stallone teased like four or five years ago a Demolition Man sequel. <gasps> really? Which would be bizarre. Um, but also, I mean, hey, in our current time and place, like maybe something worth investigating. Oh, I would. Yeah, I, I would. would. Who knows? I'd at, watch the shit out of that. At this point, I think it's pretty much DOA. Like, if, if it was ever being considered, now in the it's age of COVID, it's not that it's going to happen. Well, in the age of COVID and in the age of, like, you know, another resurgence of the conversation around police brutality. Right. Satire is dead in our current it era. It totally at, is. at least as it pertains to a demolition man. It's just about the worst possible property that you could try to reboot or or create a sequel to in our current moment. But I think that's why you got to go back to these early 90s gems, man, because yeah. there's a lot there's a lot in there. Even on the ones that, you know, you can dismiss as being ridiculous or preposterous in some way i i definitely remember watching this movie like on tv when i was a kid and just being like what the fuck is going on (laughs) and like watching it again i was like also what the fuck is going on but also okay there's some like there's some stuff it went from huh to huh huh yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's it's an evolution it's an evolution and like we said like that's the reason that the show exists is because even on its worst days the 90s put out something like this where we can look back at it and say, holy shit, there's there's something to talk about there. There's something to talk about. And with that, I think that we are pretty much done with Demolition Man for the time being. How did they say goodbye? I don't I don't remember. Oh, we'll I wish I wish uh, Oh, did they didn't they say be well? Yeah, they said be well. That's what it is. Give him a be well for me. Well Was it be well? I, I think it was be well. Yes. Dear listener, be well. Be well. Until next time, reminder that you can follow us on Twitter. We're at HitFactoryPod. You can also subscribe to us on Patreon 
at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Again, we're extending that donation through the month of September to the Conscious Kids COVID-19 Rent Relief Fund. Please give if you can. If you know anyone who likes 90s movies, who likes the show, send it their way. We would love to give that organization uh, all the support that we can and the families that they are serving. Until next time. We the old school. Yeah, old school. We the old school. Yeah, old school. Been getting that money for a girl, sweetest honey. Got me some roses and a little bling. I knocked on her door, she said, what you waiting for? I heard you was looking for a king. Been climbing the pyramid, her steps made of green. I'm getting closer. Getting closer. To my little queen.